0: Welcome to Body Signals, the Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 1, Episode 6. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Sunil Koliwad, the Chief of Endocrinology and Metabolism at UCSF. Dr. Koliwad is also an advisor to us here at Cygnos. On today's first part of our two-part series, we're going to talk about why diets only work temporarily, the battles that we wage with our own bodies when we try to lose weight too quickly, and why incremental changes and feedback loops provide the key to lasting weight loss. The statements and opinions expressed by Dr. Kolewad on today's show are intended for educational purposes only and are not intended as medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is established by Dr. Kolewad's participation in today's show. If you have specific questions about your own health, you should consult with your physician or healthcare professional. I'm Bill Tancer, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Sunil Koliwad with us. Dr. Koliwad is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at UCSF. He's got a PhD in Molecular Physiology, an MD from Baylor. He's a board endocrinologist and internist and leads the Koliwad Lab at UCSF, which studies the intersection of nutrition, immunity, and metabolic health. Dr. Koliwad is also on the Cygnos Scientific Advisory Board. Dr. Kolowad, welcome to our show. Thanks a lot, Bill. I really appreciate the chance. Absolutely. We, I'm going to start with a, a question that uh, that fascinates me whenever I talk to, to a doctor, which is why did uh, you choose to follow endocrinology metabolism? What drew you to those fields in your study?
1: That's a great question. Uh, my PhD is in molecular physiology and specifically was focusing on vascular physiology and in the course of transitioning from my Ph.D. work to medical school, um, which is part of this sort of joint training process, um, I realized that I was very interested in um, vascular disease and vascular disease prevention more specifically. And uh, as, I, as I was considering residencies, I did a residency in what's called med or internal medicine slash pediatrics. And, and it's, a, it's a residency in which people get double-boarded both in uh, internal medicine and pediatrics. And I, I chose that field specifically because at the time I was transitioning to residency, we just started becoming aware of the uh, impending obesity epidemic and numbers were beginning to creep up. And uh, it became clear that this was going to be one of the next horizon issues that we were going to have to deal with. Um, both as a medical profession as well as a society and more generally. And, um, and I, I chose the field I chose because I wanted to be able to manage obesity and the associated risk to individuals with respect to cardiovascular disease and diabetes from early in life all the way through the lifespan into advancing age. And, and that interest, that, that real passion fueled my desire to go into endocrinology Um, as a field because uh, our profession really focuses on uh, the hormonal underpinnings of metabolic health and the intersection between our dietary habits and our um, nutrient consumption and those hormonal determinants of metabolic health. And that's what I do my research in, and that's also what drives my clinical passion. Um, I think on a personal note, uh, I was... I remember clearly. I was in the ICU one night as a as a resident, taking care of an individual who uh, had undergone a heart trans uh, who was on the list to undergo heart transplant and was being kept alive with a an inserted um, assist device that was keeping the left ventricle beating um, and his heart continuing to pump blood until a transplant donor could be found. And um, this individual ultimately passed away, and we were involved in trying to resuscitate him in the middle of the night when that um, heart, which was on its last legs, finally gave way, despite the assist device that he had in place. And we were doing everything we could think of to try to keep this this gentleman alive. And and it was must have been like three or four in the morning. And, and the, the more gray-haired um, uh, uh, physicians were, were still on their way in to the hospital, as we had uh, invested a lot of resources already with him and his family to get them to this point. And uh, uh, as we were making our last efforts in what ultimately proved to be an unsuccessful attempt to save his life, um, the cardiology fellow who was far senior to me in training muttered under his breath that he had wished he had gone into endocrinology because he really wanted to focus on preventing episodes just like this from happening to people and their loved ones. And it it was at that moment that I kind of cemented my decision that I was going to sort of devote my career focus towards prevention. Science and preventative care, as opposed to um, end stage management of diseases that
0: had already become quite advanced well that that is such a moving example, and i 've heard from so many experts uh, how much could be done if we could stem the uh, the rise of the obesity ep- epidemic, so I was reviewing some of uh, the videos that uh, Have been posted interviews uh, of you, as well as something that you produced for UCSF on eating precisely, which I found really, really insightful. We'll link to this video uh, in our show notes because I think there's so much amazing content. But one of the things I I wanna talk to you about uh, in that video is you had reviewed some studies and you uh, had shown one study that I believe is from back in 2007 in JAMA, but it's been repeated a number of different places. Uh, And its conclusion was that all diets can produce weight loss, but then there's a little asterisk there, a caveat, and that it's the weight loss really is temporary. So I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more insight into why all diets produce weight loss, but it may not be a lasting impact.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And and I think that it it really gets at the core of the intersection between science and clinical uh, understanding in obesity and weight management versus society and the, the public's desire to want to know what they should really eat um, more carefully and more precisely for them. Um, and so uh, in this study that you mentioned, uh, which, which, as you say, was, um, was published in JAMA back in 20, 2007, um, several diets were compared. Um, the Ornish diet... The Zone diet, um, uh, among them, as well as um, I believe um, a, a, uh, a carbohydrate um, reduced um, uh, diet, e- in addition to Zone diet, was also yeah, part that of was, that study.
0: That was Atkins, right?
1: Uh, Atkins diet, and and um, and so these these various different eating patterns were compared, and um, it did turn out that there was a marginal immediate benefit from Adkins versus other diets. But all the diets displayed several common features. And I think that these common features are indicative of diets. Number one, they all worked. And that's the point that I made um, in, in the talk that you highlighted. Uh, each diet produced significant weight loss versus um, uh, individuals who were not on any specific diet or intervention in particular. Number two, all the diets... Reached a plateau period where, despite the fact that the individual in question was continuing to be on the specified diet, they were no longer losing any further weight after they achieved the maximum weight that they were ultimately going to lose on that diet. And so, at that point, it becomes clear that maintaining oneself on a specific dietary regimen with the intent of inducing weight loss will basically preserve the weight that was lost at the initiation of that diet but there's not going to be any additional weight loss and so you need to do all the work to stay on that diet and um, exhibit the disciplined uh, uh uh adherence to the diet but the, the 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 outcome of that adherence will be to maintain the weight that you've already lost to that point as opposed to losing any further weight and then finally and most importantly when the diet was discontinued, which it was in this, in this study for everybody. Everybody regained the weight that they lost, and they regained that weight relatively rapidly, even versus the rate at which they lost the weight in the first place. And that last bit, I think, is really the important thing about what's at the root of your question. I can help anybody lose weight. Um, and I think most physicians and most weight loss programs can achieve some weight loss for individuals who are interested in, 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 in losing weight. Keeping the weight off is the problem because our bodies have a fundamental inability at at the level of the brain and the core neurons that are tasked with balancing energy um, from dissociating or distinguishing weight loss that's volitional and intended with unintentional weight loss, such as might occur during starvation. And we have Literally, hundreds of thousands of evolutionary years put into our, um, our makeup that prevents us from losing substantial weight through starvation. And so, as soon as we lose a little bit of weight in, in the modern world, because we're trying to, our body kicks in several compensatory mechanisms that are intended to stave off further weight loss so that we can keep ourselves alive. Because the 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 body is tricked into thinking that we must be under some sort of starvation um, uh, a regime uh, with an unavailability of food being the, the the factor that is determining why we're losing the weight and then uh, uh, various physiological mechanisms kick in that keep further weight from coming off and in the context of a diet when you stop the diet all of those compensatory mechanisms are what fuel the rise in body weight back to to normal levels in a very, very rapid fashion.
0: And, and so the mechanisms for that happening, I, I think a lot of us have heard of the, um, the slowdown in our metabolism when we diet. Is that one of the mechanisms of the body trying to preserve itself in what it perceives to be starvation?
1: That's exactly right. So, um, so In a very simplified way, and we can get into some of the details um, uh, 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 around the edges of this, but in a very simplified way, the core elements that dictate body weight homeostasis include uh, neurons that are involved in setting hunger and satiety thresholds and neurons in the brain that are involved in uh, uh, top-down neurovascular control of the rate at which we burn calories And we call that rate at which we burn calories fundamentally um, our so-called basal metabolic rate. And the basal metabolic rate, as well as our desire to engage in, um, in, uh, uh, in, in subconscious movements, we call it fidgeting, for example, the rate at which people do things like that are actually different from person to person as well as, of course, the rate at which we engage in physical activity that we are aware of. All of those things um, add up to uh, producing your total energy expenditure. The basal metabolic rate as well as the total energy expenditure are a function of neuronal pathways that dictate those things. Our our desire to get up and move around, that's not the same for all people. Some people are very happy being quite still for a long, long period of time. Some people get really restless when they're still for a short period of time. Those people have different levels of physical activity throughout the day even if they're not actually planning physical activities that we think of as quote-unquote exercise. And in addition to that, people's basal heart rate, um, the rate at which their their muscles are firing um, uh, at at their basal rate, and the rate at which uh, we actually burn energy as heat in our adipose tissue or fat tissue, those are all also different um, uh, from person to person. But when our brain perceives that we might be starving, which it is tricked into doing when we try to lose weight. A lot of those elements that dictate our total energy expenditure slow down. Basal metabolic rate slows down. Our body temperature actually falls uh, uh, somewhat. The rate at which we twitch and, and, um, and uh, uh, engage in, um, in fidgeting-type activities also slows down. Um, in fact, you can look at one um, really uh, extreme example of this, which you see in people with forms of anorexia or bulimia, where they withhold food for for um, you know uh, distinct purposes that uh, that come from uh, cognitive and um, other neurobehavioral uh, problems associated with um, their perception of body weight, conscious perception of body weight, and in response to chronic withholding of calories, in addition to slowing heart rate, in addition to reduced. Uh, uh, b- uh, core body temperature. People with those kind of conditions even have growth of of hair on their extremities um, because there's an evolutionary c- compensation suggesting that people who are starving might actually also be cold or exposed to the elements, and so our bodies have a tremendous capacity to try to compensate for what we view to be environmental uh, danger signals. And loss of body weight is one of the most evolutionarily conserved danger signals that we can think of. Um, and so we have a, a, a layer upon layer of these compensatory physiological mechanisms that when we're trying to diet, thwart our efforts to keep the weight off.
0: So we're actually working against ourselves when we're we are actually working engage. against
1: ourselves. You got it. That's right. Yep. Yeah.
0: One of the best examples I've seen of this phenomenon was was actually uh, showed up in in the journal Obesity, where they studied the TV show, The Biggest Loser, hit show, amazing show, so inspiring to see people that were obese, and in some cases, morbidly obese, lose a lot of weight through a very regimented exercise program and through calorie restriction, I think was the primary method that they used to help these people lose weight. The study showed that the 14 contestants that were studied, they studied uh, them uh, through the actual filming and then follow up at six years. And they found that when the show started to air at the beginning, the uh, weight averaged for all these 14 contestants at 328 pounds. By the end of filming, they were down to 200 pounds. Six years later, the average weight was 290 pounds. So they had gained back almost all of that weight. They lost, which I think that illustrates what uh, what you're you're telling us, which is there's this uh, connection between the brain and and uh, our metabolic rate, the way that the body preserves itself in in light of us trying to make a positive change in losing weight, and that can actually and probably will, based on all the data, work to our detriment and cause us to gain weight back.
1: That's that's really true, and I think that. Um, another learning uh, from the Biggest Loser published example of weight re- uh, regain, which has been shown in many different models of um, rapid and substantial weight loss, has also to do with um, the lack or presence, if, if one is to succeed in keeping the weight off, of a multidisciplinary, neurobehavioral, cognitive, and if you will, even psychological... Um, support system that can be brought to bear to help one consciously gain insight into the process that they're engaging in, what their body is going to be trying to do uh, to mitigate that weight loss and bring it back up to pre-intervention levels, and what they then need to be able to do in order to process that Shifting of body weight as it happens, understand and uh, make sense of it so that they can engage in some behavioral changes that are more sustainable in order to keep as much of that weight off as they can. Um, and so every time you look at a weight loss program or a dietary program that doesn't have that associated support component um, uh, along with it, there's a vulnerability. Um, in that model to weight regain. And you can even see this in patients who undergo bariatric surgery, for example. Um, You think that if you actually redo the plumbing in in an individual's um, GI system, that that would really prevent any possibility of weight regain because the anatomy is fundamentally changed in a way that favors weight loss in individuals um, who undergo those kind of procedures. But even there, you do see a lot of weight regain. Over time, And so even though people cannot tolerate eating large large amounts of food at one sitting because either their stomach size has been reduced or a sleeve has been inserted um, uh, into the system um, at the level um, of um, the stomach and below um, or other types of um, redoing of the anatomy have been instituted, people will eat more frequent small meals and, and really shift their behaviors around eating quite substantially. And in conjunction with that, they will regain the weight. Neurobehavioral uh, counseling, support um, and um, insight are very helpful in allowing people to prevent that weight regain and that's true for just about every diet. I think the only other thing that really is quite relevant in in the biggest loser example is that the more weight you lose rapidly, which a person will um, undergo if they withhold calories substantially from themselves like was done in the biggest loser competition Uh, the shock to the system and that that compensatory triggering of responses to regain the weight is much more profound people who lose the weight more slowly and more gradually allow their hormonal system and these compensatory mechanisms and their brains more fundamentally to adapt the weight loss and reset what their um, body and brain perceive to be the new normal um, in a way that is much less shocking to their system and less likely to trigger these compensatory responses. And so I try to tell my patients um, that it's not about how much weight you lose. It's really about how slowly you lose it. And the slower, if you're willing to be patient and and work together with somebody like me to do it, um, is actually much more sustainable. And once people understand that, They don't get anxious about not seeing the weight come off. And that lack of anxiety with not seeing the weight come off pays a lot of dividends later because they don't regain the weight as fast.
0: It sounds like we're not only battling our own bodies, but in in a way, we're also battling as consumers, and I think many listeners to this show probably also waging this battle, all the marketing that's coming to us in our inbox, on TV, about these different dieting programs that promise these quick results when maybe it's the more gradual uh, change or even the lifestyle change versus a temporary solution is the way to go. I have my my own insight in terms of The Biggest Loser in my first book, Click. I was studying a sample of 10 million Internet users and how they searched the Internet. And one of my fascinations was people searching for diets and the peak for diet searches always happened on January first, yeah, right. And that peak lasts for five days. By January sixth, the peak had pretty much dropped by 50, sixty percent. The low point of the year was always the same day. Wonder if you can guess what that low point was.:
1: Boy. Um, that's interesting. The low point uh, I, yeah, well, I, would, the I would one guess. day of the year. uh let's see. The, the day after thanksgiving
0: or the day so before close, Thanksgiving? so close Thanksgiving itself Thanksgiving itself okay yep that that changed when biggest losers started airing their season finale the week of thanksgiving huh That's so and that the entire time that biggest loser uh was airing during that week uh Thanksgiving day was one of the top search days. It shows you just how powerful marketing can be absolutely and influencing behavior. So, uh, I think the summary here is we're battling ourselves, but we're also battling all the messages we're receiving in terms of how we can make these changes. I
1: agree completely. I mean, I I think, you know, one of the reasons why people want to lose weight in the beginning, in the first place is because they want to look a certain way. And, um, you know, they want to, they want to be a version of what they think optimal, you know, uh, uh, being should, should look like as opposed, should, as opposed to what an optimal feeling should feel like in terms of, uh, you know, uh, what health is, um, tying health to physical appearance has been something in the marketing, um, and in our mass media for a long, long time. And hopefully we're starting to change, uh, our views of, 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 what's normal and, and what's inclusive and, and what's therefore desirable. Um, uh, right now in a dynamic way. Um, and we're, we're sort of in flux right now. And I think it's very positive changes, but traditionally this idea of what you should look like has been a very powerful signal that motivates people to, um, both try to lose weight and also to engage in um, behaviors associated with the anxiety that comes from the inability to lose weight. Um, and you know, both are, both are quite um, potentially detrimental to people. Um, you know, um, one of the one of the the thought processes that I ask my patients to engage in when they are uh, disappointed with their lack of weight loss, which also happens in addition to regain, just the inability to lose the weight and that they want to lose quickly, simply by trying something along with me, um, I ask them to to tell me how long it took them to get to the weight that they're at, and usually it's about a ten to twenty year process, depending on how old the person is. And so um, I, I, I tell them that, that if their weight has been stable, therefore, then for the last year, while they're diligently trying to do many healthy um, interventions, um, that is another five or another 10 or another 25 pounds that they would have gained during that year, had they not been engaging in these better behaviors. And um, that would have been Another five pounds in the next 20 years of, of, of weight gain along the same continuum that they would absolutely experience if they didn't do the interventions that they were now engaged in. And I think sometimes when you put it in that different light, people become really positive about, about things. And you know, weight on the scale is a really tough measure of success because of all these physiological elements that are, are meant to um, stave off weight loss. Uh, it's really hard for people to know and see right now today what impact is all this work that I'm putting in actually having. I don't look any different. I don't see myself as being different in the mirror when I look. And even when I put myself on the scale, it says I'm the same weight. So I don't see that I'm doing anything beneficial for myself. And many people quit their efforts because of that and my uh, my goal as a clinician and and somebody who who you know is really interested in this area is to convince patients that what they're doing is the right thing and it is benefiting them, even if they can't see it in these traditional ways. And I use laboratory evaluations and many other tools to help them gain insight into the benefits they're providing for themselves. But in the end, uh, they do have to trust in what I'm teaching them and what we're working on together to believe in the fact that. Healthy behaviors and healthy nutrition is beneficial, even if these crude markers that's, that that the mass media tell us we need to be looking at don't seem to show uh, the changes that they initially wanted when they came
0: into it and when your patients do see the change that they wanted, I'm assuming that uh, your advice to them and this this is lifelong change that i'm advising changes i'm advising you to make to your your uh, your eating patterns to your exercise. Um, if if the message was do this until you get to the weight you want and then you can go back to living normally, I, I imagine the, the body is going to kick in like it did with diets and and just you're going to find yourself or your patients will find themselves back where they started. So these are lifelong changes, correct?
1: That's absolutely right. and, and yeah. In fact, that's the commitment. That patients need to sort of wrap their heads around and, 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 and really embrace. Because once they do that, they look at markers like body weight as just an indicator of their daily practice. And it's that daily practice and the small habits that go along with creating that daily practice that we want to really focus on um, making sustainable so that those small changes, which additively um, can have a huge impact, are actually maintained for the duration of that person's life from that point forward. Because it's only over that long time horizon that all of these really helpful behaviors, including patterns of nutrient consumption, exert their effect. And that's really the, the, the juxtaposition. People look in the near term and they use weight as an indicator of success in the near term. But it's really only over, over the long term that all of these things that we think are healthy behaviors actually have their impact. And so I try to teach patients to shift their thinking from the very near term in terms of weeks, which is what dieting programs try to market themselves as being able to um, induce changes within, but instead to look over the years and decades a um, uh, time horizon and that you know this is an investment um, that will pay off over that, uh, over that time horizon.
0: If my question to you, though, is uh, if I were a patient, I said, doctor, I really need the feedback to know if I'm doing this right or not. Um, What's the advice? Just trust in it or is it uh, how well your clothes are fitting? Do you do you provide your patients with any um, any suggestions as to how they can tell if they're on the right track? Yeah, you know,
1: that is really a fabulous entree to, I think, a, a whole a whole new topic. Um, tr- traditionally and by traditionally I mean for the duration of my career until the last maybe two or three years there is a lot of trust and reassurance that goes into this kind of work and and yes there are some uh, uh, very simple um, uh, things that we, we used to be able to help patients use as signposts like clothes fitting like waist circumference like the ratio of their waist circumference to their hip circumference or their thigh circumference Um, and all of those things are very different and difficult to interpret based on somebody's racial background or ethnicity, because there's so much diversity in human shape, um, based on genetics that it's really tough to make a, a single approach to using anthropometric measurements as an indicator of success in, in, in things like, um, dieting or changing one's nutritional, uh, program. Um, and, and, you know, looking at blood pressure, um, uh, when you go see your doctor, looking at your lipid profile, when your doctor orders it um, on an every three-month or six-month basis. These all provide some insight that you're on the right track, and they let people gain confidence. But in the last few years, what's really become quite evident is that the power of devices that can provide immediate continuous, and real-time information um, that connects behaviors, in particular those associated with patterns of nutritional consumption, with indicators of metabolic homeostasis, for example, glycemic levels, the levels of, of, of uh, bl- glucose that are circulating in the bloodstream, for example. These Technologies and the ability to actually carry in the, carry them around with you as a part of you um, during your day and night um, has revolutionized our ability to help patients gain trust and insight and iterative ability to self correct and and improve on their patterns of behavior, most notably in the context of their nutritional patterns of consumption. That is, uh, you know, was untouchable. Uh, uh only a few years back and um the power that that patients gain from this kind of real-time insight i think creates you know huge enthusiasm for what we can now do for people not just for for diabetes prevention not just for blood pressure control not just for cardiovascular um, uh disease prevention but for the Optimization of body weight, which is a factor that underlies all of these disease processes that we seem to care so much about, because of the toll they take on on human productivity and uh, lifespan and and and, and uh, the healthcare economy. Um, to be able to do this now for weight, I think is is fundamental, um, and therefore um, it, it it's just it just changes everything. It changes everything in terms of how we think about. Uh, what people can do for themselves and, 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 and how much power they can take into their, own, into their own hands in this regard.
0: Thanks for joining us for the first part of our interview with Dr. Kolowat. Please check back next week when we'll release the second half of our show. Until then, you can follow us on Instagram at Cygnos Health. And if you're interested in signing up for early access, you can visit us at our website at Cygnos.com. Until then.